How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Annie Dillard. In this episode, I'm going to tell you why how you spend your days is how your hormones function and ultimately determines the trajectory of your health. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription Podcast with Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guest, you are going to love. She is joining us from New Zealand. She's actually been a global traveler most of her life and lived in various places. She's a naturopath and she's a genius when it comes to women's hormonal health. She has a very kind of global, evolutionary view of hormonal function, which really matches mine. So I love talking to her. She's a big thinker and she likes to help women to understand what their hormones mean on a bigger picture than just every day regulating their period and producing reproduction, because you guys know that your hormones are about so much more than that, right? So we're going to dive in with Dr. Lara Bryden. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and we will get started. So she's a naturopathic doctor. She's author of the best-selling books, Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual. She has more than 20 years experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, menopause, and many other hormone and period related health problems. Welcome, Dr. Laura Bryden. Hi, Kieran. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. We met recently when we did the event with Dr. Kabeka, and I have looked at your beautiful book, Hormone Repair Manual, which I love, and you have some really unique concepts that I know everybody's going to really appreciate hearing about. Mm-hmm. And so I want to dive into it, but I want to start by giving everyone just a little context about how you came to specialize in women's hormonal health and period health. Yeah, good question. So. I've been a naturopathic doctor for 25 years, which starts to sound like a long time. And in the early years, I was just more in general practice, treating everyone. But as a lot of naturopathic doctors say, a lot of who we see are women back in, you know, in the 90s, coming looking for solutions that weren't the pill, that weren't you know, surgeries, and especially back then, I mean, some of the treatments were not very nice that they, you know, had on offers. So I was able to, right from the beginning, just on the ground, Monday to Friday, nine to five, you know, find other solutions for my patients. And that's what built my interest and my focus in women's health, because I, I came to discover that women's bodies, women's hormones respond so well to nutritional interventions, even more so than I had been taught to expect when I went through naturopathic college. So out of that, I, well, some of my first work was in Canada. You can hear from my accent, I'm Canadian. And then I lived in Sydney, Australia for a long time, 15 years. I had a women's health clinic there. And now I live in New Zealand. And out of all of those years of practice, I've yeah, I've written these two books, Period Repair Manual, about periods for women of any age. And then the one we're talking about today is Hormone Repair Manual for Women Over 40. Yes. Super excited to dive into it. So let's do that. You mentioned a concept which I have never heard, and I love it when I learn something new. <laughs> and you call perimenopause the second puberty. Yeah. Can you help everybody understand what that means? 
Yeah, so it's analogous. It's the mirror image of first puberty. So obviously in childhood, we start out low hormone state, you know, low estrogen, and then we ramp up to our reproductive years and that's first puberty. And a lot of systems change in the body during that time. There's a, you know, recalibration of the brain, metabolism changes quite a lot. Obviously, we, we, we know that. And then the thing that I'm trying to explain in this book is that that happens in reverse in our 40s, which is when perimenopause begins. I think I'm just speaking to anyone who's listening, excuse me, who's maybe thinking menopause is way off in some distant future. If you're 41, 42, 43, you're in the territory of perimenopause or second puberty. And it's the our hormones winding down, although as we'll talk about, they don't do so in a you know quiet, go quietly kind of way. Very often the early phases of perimenopause is actually high levels of estrogen spiking up to three times higher than we had in our 20s and 30s. And that's that kind of high estrogen exposure combined with low progesterone, we'll talk about that, is is also kind of is also similar to first puberty for girls because even though girls don't have super high levels of estrogen like we do in our 40s, they are quite sensitive to it. So as you know, you know, women are most at risk for, for example, heavy menstrual flow in the teen years, those early teen mm-hmm. years, and then again in their 40s. So that's an example of a, you know, a similar pattern in hormones. And also like first puberty and second puberty in our 40s, our systems recalibrate, especially our brain. Because what the research shows, and I'm sure you know, is that most of the symptoms of perimenopause are neurological. So this is, I mean, there's also heavy periods and weight gain, a few other things, but there's a lot going on with the brain. And the research really backs that up. So I just love thinking of it as a recalibration, reframing it. It's not a, a bad thing necessarily. Just as first puberty is not a bad thing. It's it's just something we, we do. It's how the female so body works. Yeah. <laughs> when you say primarily neurological, what kinds of things would women be experiencing? Because I know they're thinking, okay, what does that mean to I know. me? What would I experience? Excellent question. So obviously hot flashes or hot flushes, as we say, down under, night sweats, Reduced ability to cope with stress, that's quite a commonly reported symptom. And that's in the scientific literature as well. They're seeing that there's a recalibration of our the communication between our brain and our adrenal glands. So some people sort of refer to that as the HPA axis or a stress response system or our adrenal system that undergoes a recalibration. And that can make it feel, I've had patients say to me, I used to excel with stressful projects, you know, with work stress, and now I just can't cope. That's not unusual. Other neurological symptoms include sleep disturbance. That's a big one in our 40s for some women and migraines. I don't know how much you've seen that with your patients, but Mm -hmm. I just had a patient a couple, a few days ago, actually, in my clinic here who said, yeah, she's, she's had migraines come back. Some of them are with like a silent migraines or vestibular migraines where there's, there's, she gets the aura, but not always the headache. And she said to me, oh yeah, you know, I had a few migraines back when I was like 12 or 13, first getting my periods. I'm going, yep, that's how it works. And, she, and then they settled down through most of my years and having babies, they're pretty good. And now they're back. It's like, yes, that's actually a a well-known symptom of perimenopause. Yes. So those, all of the above are the symptoms that women start complaining of. And that kind of lack of stress tolerance and stress resilience, I find is so subtle and so pervasive and that we women tend to blame ourselves. It's almost like the andropause that men go through where they kind of lose their edge, but we go through it usually a decade or even more but ahead of time. But I think most women don't even associate that with perimenopausal type change. What's your experience with that? Yeah, I think that's really well observed. And you're right about women blaming themselves. This is something that throughout many aspects of women's women's health, there's that, you know, try to combat that narrative that it's just something they're doing wrong. Yeah, I think a lot of my patients say they just kind of felt like they're going a little crazy (laughs) or maybe they just, you know, (laughs) and it does happen in a busy time too. This is where it gets complicated because our 40s are busy. So very often we're peaking with our career maybe or changing careers sometimes and we have aging parents and you know, if you've had, if people have had children, then there's going to be children of different ages, often teenagers. So there's a lot going on and it's understandable that you might think, oh, I've just 
I'm doing too much. And that's, that's a factor, but there is also this hormonal factor and this brain rewiring factor. Yes. So it's super important to be aware of that. And then I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but here in the US, the common treatment of OBGYNs for this phase of life is birth control pills. I know. Can you talk a little bit about what types of treatments might be offered to women in a traditional medical practice for this time at this time of life for these symptoms we've just talked about and why that might be a good idea or a bad idea. Yeah, good question. Well, you've just said it pretty much as you know, you know, conventionally practicing doctors, birth control pill is almost one of the only tools in the toolbox, right? So they've got that, they've got antidepressants, and then that's pretty much as far as I can tell, that's the end of, you know, what, what is on offer for women who are feeling like, you know, women will say I'm hormonal, there's something going on, like my premenstrual symptoms have really ramped up, I'm just getting to the point where I can't cope. And there, there, there might be, I mean, both with the woman and the doctor, there might be like some sense, yeah, your menstrual cycle is involved. So, you know, the conventional approach is just to shut that down. I would argue, and I know you and I are on the same page about a lot of things, like this is not the time to be shutting down the ovaries, I would argue. I mean, you've only got, you know, 10 years left with the ovaries. So you might as well try to get as much benefit as you can from the estrogen and progesterone that we make with a natural menstrual cycle. That's why I have a chapter in the book called Cycle While You Can. You're building metabolic reserve, you're including like bone health and brain health because our female hormones are quite beneficial for lots of different systems. And so yeah, I would say there's a lot more to do. Acknowledging that sometimes symptoms can can seem quite strong or be, be quite strong. I have patients say to me, oh, I always use natural supplements. I always use herbal medicines until I got to 45. And then I just, you know, periods were too heavy or the mood symptoms were too strong. And so that's when a lot of women actually finally do resort to hormonal birth control, even if they'd avoided it for years before that. But I would just mention straight away the option of using progesterone capsules or prometrium. I think, do you use that in your practice, Dr. Kieran? Is I that, don't use yeah. prometrium, no. But you use, you I use, use um, bioidentical. You use yes. compounded. Right. I mean, that's the natural progesterone and it's progesterone that's exactly identical to our body's own hormones, quite different from the progestin mm-hmm. contraceptive drugs in hormonal birth control. And so that could be a nice treatment, especially in the earlier phases of perimenopause when there's still quite a lot of estrogen, but very little progesterone. That, in fact, that the fact that we lose progesterone before we lose estrogen mm-hmm. is where a lot of the symptoms, early symptoms come from. Yes. I love this chapter that you have cycle while you can. Yeah. And I don't think most women are aware of the benefits of having a menstrual cycle apart from being able to become pregnant and produce a baby. I don't think they understand it. And you you mentioned them briefly, but I really want to hammer this home. So can you talk about how vital these menstrual cycles are for us to create this reserve? Because once we stop cycling, we don't have it anymore. So what are we building up? What's so precious that we're creating? Yeah, so both, so let's talk about estrogen first. It helps to build bones, obviously. I mean, bone. well, we build, I say build bone, you know, as you know, we our strongest bones we're ever going to have around age 25 or 30. And then we do always start to lose some bone mass. But by having good men- healthy menstrual cycles, you know, pregnancies potentially and making lots of good estrogen during our reproductive years, we can maintain healthy bones. Estrogen is also this, we're talking about estradiol now, which is our main estrogen that the ovaries make. It's also very good for the cardiovascular system. It's excellent for the brain. It improves insulin sensitivity. So it actually, estradiol is like a superpower for women. It actually shelters us to some extent from metabolic disease compared to men. So during the reproductive years, we are less, when we're making lots of estradiol, we are less likely than men to develop insulin resistance or pre-diabetes. We can still develop, it's still possible to develop it in our reproductive years, but it's, we're somewhat protected from that. Estradiol is anabolic, helps to build muscle. So these are all, you know, strong benefits. And there's evidence, several lines of evidence that the contraceptive, you know, the estrogen and the contraceptive drugs in the pill does not have the same benefits. And then 
there's the progesterone that we've just talked about. The only way you, you can make it by ovulating every month, by being pregnant, <laughs> or you can take it as either a compounded bioidentical capsule or Prometrium is also the body identical progesterone. So that progesterone has lots of benefits, including I'll just the two big ones I talk about in the book or that it are that it's quite tranquilizing. For most women, it's quite calming and beneficial mm -hmm. for the brain. The brain loves progesterone, actually. It loves one of the metabolites of progesterone that acts as a what's called a neurosteroid or you know, beneficial brain hormone. And then and actually losing progesterone, as I mentioned, is one of the reasons the neurological symptoms start up in our early 40s. But the other couple of benefits of real progesterone for general health is that it modulates immune function, so can help to reduce the risk of autoimmune disease. So listeners might know the most common autoimmune disease in women, especially in our 40s, mm -hmm. no coincidence when we start to lose progesterone is Hashimoto's thyroid disease, which affects as you, I think it's like one in four women over 40 have some level of thyroid autoimmunity. And then progesterone is also good for bones. And also progesterone, real progesterone, not progestins helps to reduce the risk. Well, I'm going to boldly say it helps to reduce the risk of breast cancer. I mean, that's one of those questions yes. where the research is not conclusive, but the endocrinology professor who helped me with my book, Professor Geraldine Pryor, she's pretty convinced that real progesterone potentially helps to reduce the risk of breast cancer. She's written a, a blog post about that, and I think she's probably right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's actually it's Professor Pryor who makes a statement that I quote in the book was that 35 to 40 years of ovulatory menstrual cycles. So that's natural menstrual cycles, not pill bleeds. 35 to 40 years of menstrual cycles is important, not just for making a baby, but also to help to reduce the risk of dementia, cardio, heart disease, diabetes, and breast cancer, and osteoporosis, sorry, and breast cancer. So I love that kind of messaging. I think it really drives home that our female hormones are an asset, not a liability. And that to say to women that you only need ovulation if you're going to make a baby would be like saying to men, you only need testicular function and testosterone if you're going to make a baby, which would be crazy. <laughs> Obviously, we know that men need testosterone and well, to be fair, women need testosterone as well, but women also need estrogen and progesterone. Yeah, I, you said so many wonderful things in there. Yeah. Estrogen is a superpower. I want yeah. a bumper sticker that says that. Yeah. And the concept that a man only needs uh, testosterone for reproduction, nobody would yeah. buy that. No. But I really feel like as women, we are reduced to our reproductive capacity when it comes to our hormones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really, that's how I was taught in medical school and residency. It's like, we're just little men. Yeah. <laughs> and we just have this little accessory pack, kind of like a little black bag you might wear to a black tie dinner that allows us to reproduce. And that's our hormones. And then it wasn't until my own health hit a wall in my 40s at my second puberty mm -hmm. that I realized, well, I became teachable first off to <laughs> realize I didn't know everything and went back to school to get trained in anti-aging metabolic and functional medicine and learn how to speak hormone mm -hmm. and understand that no, foundationally, we are different. And these hormones are so important. Female hormones, I love that you said, are an asset, not a liability. Yeah. <laughs> and necessary for all our entire global functioning. So brain function. I don't want to let slip what you said, because it's super important. Mm -hmm. It's not only in the perimenopause or second puberty that we want to cycle while we can. We want to cycle while we can the whole time, unless we're Ex pregnant. Exactly. And exactly. Pregnancy. And also just to like clarify, you know, yeah. if, if we're, we're saying cycling so that you can make hormones... As a, I call it like a, a monthly deposit into the bank account of long-term health. But pregnancy, you make a lot of hormones. And actually, we know from some of the research that that deposit, the pregnancy hormone deposit into the bank account of long-term health is also very good. I think you get a big dose of estrogen and progesterone with pregnancy. So 
yeah, it's, you know, not that everyone has to have pregnancy. That's not a reason to have a pregnancy necessarily, but it's just, I'm just saying you're either, you're either making hormones by cycling or you're making hormones with a pregnancy, which is all beneficial. Yeah. As you're talking, I, I'm envisioning, you know, it's like getting an inheritance from your ancestors, only it's your kids. So don't yeah. say your kids never, ever, never gave you anything. Yeah. <laughs> they gave you the opportunity to build hormonal reserve. Nice. Yeah. And then we come to menopause. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. You have in the book, the meaning of menopause through an evolutionary lens, which probably everybody, most people listening haven't heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was important for me on a few levels, because the other thing about me is that before I trained as a naturopathic doctor, I worked as a evolutionary biologist. I have a peer reviewed paper about actually sex differences in foraging behavior of animals. So, you know, I've been looking at health and biology through the lens of evolution for a long time and researching the book and reading about this aspect of menopause was quite meaningful for me, both kind of intellectually, but also personally, because I'm now, I'm about to, I think I have graduated to menopause. My final period was a year ago, was in January last year. So as you know, like that's the sort of magic 12 months after the final period, I think I've achieved Mm -hmm. menopause or graduated to menopause. And I'm feeling so much better about it than I expected. I think young, as young women, we we dread it. I mean, I don't know how your people, your listeners felt, but about it, but like there's this sort of fear or dread of menopause. But then once you actually get here, uh, like my experience anyway, is that it's, it's fine. And part of that for me is the meaning through an evolutionary lens, which just means the most, a lot of, there's several lines of evidence to suggest that menopause is not new. Menopause is not an accident of living too long, that our ancestors should they be lucky enough to survive childhood and young adulthood and childbirth and all the hazards that our ancestors faced, should they be lucky enough to survive all those things? They lived past menopause. They actually, the human lifespan has not changed much at all. Like individuals were always like for probably hundreds of thousands of years able to live to 70 or 80 on average, most people didn't. That's where the life expectancy statistic comes from. A lot of that was from childhood mortality, which is just so sad to think about. Like it used to be, mm-hmm. you know, it used to be very difficult to get through, to be lucky enough to get through to old age, but the human body biologically could do it. And there's some lines of evidence to suggest that, and I just love this, that a longer human lifespan may have evolved or been selected for because of how advantageous or beneficial post-reproductive women were to their groups, to their family groups. And we, we know this from modern day for hunter-gatherer people. This is all explored in a book that I quote in my book called The Slow Moon Climbs, but she talks about how like the research around women in their 50s, 60s, and 70s living a traditional lifestyle gather more food than anybody else in the group. They're really good at what they do. They're really good at providing for others. They share a lot of what they gather because they personally actually need fewer calories, which I would argue is also kind of a superpower. We tend to think of our shift in metabolism with menopause as a you know, bad thing that creates weight gain. But I do also like to reframe that for our ancestors, that would have been a good thing that we could get away with fewer calories potentially. So to me, it just sort of, yeah, I just really like to debunk this narrative that menopause is just an accident of living too long. We're not an accident. I mean, it makes sense intuitively, don't you think? Like everyone knows women in their 50s, 60s, even 70s who are getting a lot of stuff done, who are like taking charge. And where would we be without them, really? Yeah, we get shit done. And yes. we also have we have accumulated wisdom, but we also have this emotional equanimity and we have gifts that we need to give. And I always say that the Dalai Lama is quoted as saying the Western woman will save the world. And I I say it's the Western menopausal woman. Agree. (laughs) And you talk about in the book how whales and women, whales are the only 
other species that live into menopause and women. So there really must be a reason. I think everything happens for a reason. There are no accidents. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, actually, (laughs) I was going to mention the whales because biologists are very intrigued by this, especially it's the orcas. There's only a few species of whale that do this. And they're matriarchal. So the older females are called repositories of knowledge. If pods of whales are lucky enough, you know, to have an older female or females in their group, they're far more likely as a group to do well, to find food when things get tough. So yeah, I mean, it obviously works from a survival standpoint to in certain, you know, species to have older females around and it just yeah, this is where I, that's what I mean by the meaning of menopause. You know, it's um, yeah, it's important. It's been important for humans, mm-hmm. and I think it's so important to have that framework to understand because otherwise, it's just this thing you're going through. And you're right. You talk about and can you talk a little bit about? You talk about it in the book, the grief that goes as- yeah. along with the menopause. I mean, I think for for myself and for a lot of my clients perimenopause can be so hellacious that by the time it's over, you're like, please just stop. That was me. Just stop. But I went through that phase kind of before I knew what I know now. Yes. So I would have known tools to use to fix that. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to respond to from what you said. Well, one is just to point out that the worst of it, like if not, first of all, not everyone experiences terrible symptoms. So that's important that women don't fear unnecessarily. At the same time, it's not your, you know, if you do encounter symptoms, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong necessarily. Like there's a lot of variability, both genetically and for different reasons of who experiences worse symptoms versus not so bad. But the other thing to point out is that the neurological symptoms anyway, a lot of them, well, to some, to a large degree, the symptoms are temporary for most women. This is the brain recalibration or the brain rewiring. So it can be a little tumultuous while you're in the middle of it, but, you know, hopefully, you know, take some treatments to feel better, including possibly hormone therapy. We can talk about that to feel better, knowing that there's going to be another, you come out the other side into what Professor Pryor, who helped me with the book, calls the stable she's like the calm and stable life phase of menopause. You know, once you get through into your potentially, you know, mid fifties and beyond, there's still a few things to keep track of with your health, but overall things should be a lot more stable. I just, I do want to mention that another concept that I talk about in the book, which is the idea of a critical window. So we do go through this rewiring recalibration time that can be associated with symptoms, but there's something else to think about here, which is kind of serious, but also worth mentioning that what the research is showing is if we, if the brain recalibration, you know, metabolic, metabolically as well, the brain energy system is changing. If that sort of doesn't go well, or if there's insulin resistance, or if there's different factors that potentially can put women, women on a longer term path to increased risk of dementia. And also, you know, in other systems that there's like, there's a Increased risk of long-term health problems can start in menopause. And they don't, I guess what I'm trying to say with the book is they don't have to. I think this is a critical window for health. It's also a window of opportunity to do something about that and feel better. And as an investment in not getting dementia, potentially things like like that. So what um, are some of your favorite actions to help your patients with at that time so that they really can protect their brain? Yeah, but that's a really good question. Well, it's a, partly it's about, okay, so first of all, I talk about the um, basic action plan for brain rewiring, and that includes, and we'll just, I'll just list through them quickly, like just obvious things like moving your body, because actually movement and building muscle is really good for the brain, which seems a little counterintuitive, but the research is very solid on that. I talk about magnesium, which is a simple supplement, but the brain loves it. It just loves it. And I, I pair that with an amino acid called taurine, partly based on these beautiful magnesium taurine formulas we get in Australia and New Zealand that are quite popular down here. Then I do talk about just brain nutrition in general, like having, you know, making sure you've ticked all the boxes for adequate levels of vitamin B12, also choline, potentially progesterone can be helpful for brain, but also estrogen can be helpful for brain. So we can talk about that a little bit, especially for women who have insulin resistance. It's, I guess, one of my other check boxes or, you know, things to think about when you're in this transition is 
figure out if you have insulin resistance or not, because now is the time to know and to reverse that if you do, because insulin resistance, you know, side by side with the drop in the normal drop in estrogen with menopause can be really not good for the brain. Potentially The, the brain does love estrogen. So the brain, I guess I'd phrase it this way. The brain loves estrogen. Estrogen supports the brain in lots of different ways. I think women can get, can survive that drop in estrogen if they don't have insulin resistance or if their brain is healthy in other ways. But if the, you know, if the brain is struggling other ways, then that drop in estrogen is not good for, and I I'm in favor. I mean, I, I think, I know you're quite, you like, you support hormone therapy and taking estrogen hormone therapy. I do too, especially for women who need it. I think who are experiencing strong brain symptoms and those later phases of perimenopause when estrogen drops. I'm going to share a little quirky thing about that, which you may or may not know. I just learned it myself pretty recently. There's been some new research that one of one of the proposed mechanisms that estrogen is good for the brain and I'm sure it's just one of many, but one is that estrogen helps, it supports the enzyme that makes choline, phosphatidylcholine. So if you know this nutrient, choline, it's one of those nutrients where we, we get it from food, but we can also make a small amount of it. And our ability to make it is very much that enzyme is dependent on estradiol. So with menopause, we get this automatic shift to having a higher dietary requirement for choline and choline is really good for brain health. So there's actually just a new paper about that sort of wondering is, you know, choline partly the mechanism of how estrogen, you know, protects the brain. So I thought that was, yeah, yeah really Very quite interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yes. And so I know some women, so you said the first thing they should figure out is, are they insulin resistant? And yes. Despite the fact that people like us talk about the insulin resistance all yeah. the time, I find I the know. general public does not know what that is. And when I mention it, they're like, what are you talking about? They know, know diabetes. So how would a woman, because there's some women listening now are going, I don't know, am I insulin I resistant? <laughs> how would I know? Excellent question. You you know your audience. I think that's why you're such a good interviewer. You're you're hearing you're listening, seeing, hearing it from their point of view, which is great. Yes. So it's pre-diabetes, also called metabolic syndrome. To be very clear, a normal blood glucose reading cannot rule out insulin resistance, right? Like there could be a problem with insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome even years before blood sugar or blood glucose goes high into the diabetes range. So there's different ways to test it. And I'm happy, curious to you know hear how yeah. you assess it. I, I test ahead. it with insulin measures. So a, basically a glucose tolerance test with insulin or a dynamic insulin test. So it's a test where you do a fasting blood sample. But in this case, rather than just glucose, you also test insulin, the hormone insulin. And then Sometimes actually just the fasting insulin is enough in severe cases to just see that's clearly insulin resistance. But for someone who's a little bit more borderline, it can be helpful, although not a fun test to go through, is where you drink the sugar drink and then you have another test at the one and two hours. And then you test again, both glucose and insulin. And then you can get that sort of insulin curve. And what you're looking for, what the situation of insulin resistance is elevated insulin at any or all of those points fasting or and or one or two hours so is that how do you how do you test dr karen yeah those are great tests yeah i mean screening tests fasting glucose and fasting insulin if they're elevated yes. then you kind of know you know the a1c yeah. but if not you can do the tolerance test just like when you were pregnant yeah and I find that this is such a huge problem for so many women in perimenopause and in, per- in menopause. Yep. And so we spend a lot of time working on that. So I'm going to assume that a lot of people listening right now are going to f- discover when they do get tested that they yeah. have some insulin resistance. Yes. So what are some of your favorite tools for perimenopausal and menopausal women to reverse that? Yeah, this is central to a lot of what's going on because insulin resistance causes 
weight gain, weight gain around the middle, which is obviously, you know, a concern for a lot of people, but it also, as we've been talking about, it impacts the brain. It has, it's a big risk factor for cardiovascular risk, even to some extent for breast cancer and osteoporosis, like all the risks, all the things that we're worried about. And it's common as you, I don't know if you said this statistic already, but for people over 40 or 50, especially like this is about one in two people, probably about one in two of your listeners are like definitely have insulin right. resistance. And so you don't need to feel like anyone listening, you don't need to feel ashamed or concerned or, you know, this it's something to address and reverse, but it's, you're not alone. If that makes you feel any better. A lot of it's from our exposure to our modern food environment. I kind of talk about it in those terms because I'm a biologist at heart. Like it's, we're surrounded by the wrong foods and it's not always about individual choices, right? Like we grow up we with are. them. They're just everywhere. It's it, so we're as poor animals in this system, ecosystem, trying to, you know, eat what's right for us. So that's can be challenging. And also, as you know, like a lot of environmental toxins increase the risk of insulin resistance. So there's things working against us, especially for anyone with a genetic predisposition. There's those few happy people out there who seem to just genetically not be prone to insulin resistance for whatever reason, they just won the genetic lottery. But like for a lot of people, we, we hate those people. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, and just to say also with menopause, we do all of us automatically get a shift to increased risk of insulin resistance. That's part of, this is the metabolic shift. This is what's happening. This is actually partly what I referred to right at the beginning, beginning when I said for our, you know, prehistoric ancestors, a shift to a kind of more thrifty keto sort of metabolism would have been actually a superpower for those women. Cause they could have, they had a, they were like lean. They didn't, you know, they could just sort of survive on less basically. Cause they're, we have a, you know, reduced requirement for calories with menopause arguably. So I'm just reframing it. Like what is now the thing that makes us gain weight in our modern, modern food environment was the thing that our ancestors we're happy about. They didn't need as much food, right? but how to reverse it's reversible as I think, I, th I think you've written about, and I've written about a bit too. It's a combination. Well, everyone's got a different theory, right? I guess I'll just tell you what I think works yeah. in general, although I'm, I'm open to stronger interventions like keto diet and low carb. I mean, I, my first step is and I have a patient story about this. I also have a blog post called The Power of Eating Enough. My first step is satiety. So this often involves protein. Well, not often. This is about protein. Protein mm -hmm. is our primary appetite from a biology perspective. So there's something called, which is very interesting, there's something called the protein leverage hypothesis. People don't have to memorize that word, but what it means is in humans and many other mammals, but not all amino acids or protein are the, is the, are the things is what our body is actually most concerned about achieving every day. So actually what happens is our appetite is geared such that we will keep eating until we get enough amino acids that day, every single day. And, and it, the body is so desperate for protein that it doesn't care if it has to like eat through three bags of chips to try to get whatever protein <laughs> it thinks might be in there. It'll just keep going. You can't with willpower stop that actually. Like it's because it, we're, we're animals mm -hmm. to a, a large extent. It's really hard with willpower to not be like, to, you know, stop real hunger. So this is what I, with my patients, I'm like, give yourself protein, like early mm -hmm. in the day, like just like feed that appetite straight away. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, and this <laughs> is the old adage, you know, the kids, when we're kids, we say, can we have dessert first? No, no. you have to eat the protein first. Yes. So you got to do the same to yourself. And that's why I hate these little, like these little carb loaded hundred pounds, yeah. I mean, hundred calorie snack snack bags, you know, they'll be like only a hundred calories in this bag, but your body will not be satisfied. So you're never only just going to eat that bag. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We know this. you're right. Like the traditional wisdom for a lot of our, you know, families was they knew this. It's like you eat the meat and vegetables first. And then mm -hmm. if you're, you, if you're still hungry, you can, you know, have something sweet after that. So step one for my patients is reach that protein requirement. It's a lot higher for people than they realize, I think, especially women tend to under eat protein, maybe not mm -hmm. always, but also this is a cruel irony, but insulin resistance increases the requirement for proteins. So you actually 
there's a few things that increase menopause increases the requirement for protein. So we really, I mean, I have meat for breakfast a lot of the time, which is sounds <laughs> and chicken soup. Actually, I think I say in my book, actually one of my Yay. favorites is chicken soup. And if, if people are listening and thinking, Oh, that sounds too heavy for breakfast. I would just suggest this. You don't have to be eating a steak at like six 30 in the morning. Like <laughs> if, you know, if it's, I say to my patients, wait until you're hungry, like wait until your stomach acid kicks in, like you're actually hungry, which I think for a healthy person is going to be around nine or 10 AM might be earlier. Like kids are hungry early, of course, because they're kids, you know, they have different <laughs> metabolism, but for an adult, a lot of women, especially midlife say, oh yeah, by nine 30, 10, I'm like, yeah, I could eat something. Okay. So wait until you're hungry and then eat protein. And that, like that first step, and you're on your way already to an mm -hmm. easier time with diet. Because the next eventual step, step two for me with my patients is <sighs> quit desserts. I mean, I say quit desserts. I guess I will, like, you know, depending on if what type of, if it's just like obviously fresh fruit or frozen berries or something. But I'm talking about like sugary, like very sugary foods. That's mm -hmm, the first mm -hmm. thing that has to go is the soft yeah. drinks and the fruit juice and the ice creams and the sorbets and the like sweetened yogurts. And, and that it's non-negotiable, really. You can't reverse insulin resistance without removing those foods. I would the sugar. Yeah. <laughs> without getting yeah. rid of the sugar. Yeah. Right. You got to quit the sugar. And then I know I'm sure exercise is part of yours. Yeah. Your regimen. Yeah. And Movement. magnesium. Yeah. And magnesium. Mag yes. Magnesium actually just helps with sugar cravings. It just makes you feel good, satisfied. And then you can easily just say, no, I'm not going to have that dessert. And if you feel, just as a comment, I'll say, if you feel any social pressure to have the dessert, say, you know what? It looks beautiful. I'm going to have some later. And then that's just a white lie because you're never actually going to do that. But at least then you like, <laughs> because you know what happens? I don't know. I mean, if you've worked, I work a bit with weight loss with my patients. I've perceived like, depending on the group of friends or the people, like what happens is if you announce, oh, I'm not going to have that dessert because I'm being healthy or even worse, you know, I'm trying to lose weight. If you say that to some of oh. some people, they will retaliate and they'll, because then they take it as like an attack that they're not being healthy. So then there's like <laughs> this pressure to eat the cake. And so it becomes this whole, so I'm like, you don't have to explain yourself. You just, you can just quietly just not have that. And I yeah. love gosh, I never yep. thought of that. Just like, oh yeah, I'll have some later. Yeah, exactly. That, it like bypasses the resistance. It's like ducking a punch. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you know, you know how men, I mean, this is a generalization, but women always, we always feel like we have to explain ourselves, you know, yes, but men might be do. like, I don't want that. I'm not going to have that. I, I don't have, you know, no reason given. It's like, I'm not going to eat that. It's like, just, you know, be like that. Just don't explain see, yourself. Right. And see, that's more my approach is like, like I, I just say like, I don't eat that. That's right. what I say. I don't That's a good way. That. That's not for me. Um, yeah. But I kind of like for some women have a hard time being that, uh, putting the stake in the ground and being that kind yeah. of forthright. Yeah. I'll have some later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that. All right, I'm going to add that to my suggestions. Yeah. I know when we did the event with, I think Dr. Maritza was there, Dr. Anna. Yeah. And we were talking about hormone replacement therapy and you were touching on the fact that it can actually, actually increase insulin resistance. No. Okay. Well, let's, so can you talk more about that? Because we didn't get really to talk about it, but yeah. I know you'd go over it a little bit in your book, but yeah, love to hear your okay. thoughts on that. So estradiol and progesterone improve insulin resistance. Okay. So estradiol, especially, I mean, I would say es estrogen therapy helps to improve insulin resistance and weight loss. Like was I, very little doubt about that in my mind. I know some bizarrely, somehow estrogen gets blamed for weight gain or well, okay. It depends what we're talking about weight gain. Like right now we're talking about with insulin resistance and the unhealthy weight gain, we're talking about weight gain around the middle, that kind of fat distribution. I mean, mm -hmm. estrogen, probably not from a hormone therapy dose, but like in general, estrogen creates kind of a round bottom and rounder thighs. And that's, you know, that's the weight that's it. But in general, it promotes weight loss around the middle. That's estrogen. When in the, in Dr. Anna's little, I remember that interaction because we were like, you and I were like, yeah, we agree. We agree. And then I said something about, it was actually about testosterone. Oh, that's right. It was and that's when we disagreed. So <laughs> yeah. So it's fun. Actually a bit of disagreement is, is, and I don't, I suspect we don't disagree that much. But it, I mean, he, I would say there's a sweet spot with testosterone. You know, I think, yeah. 
Obviously, testosterone has many benefits. As women, we do have some. When we're in our reproductive years, we get this really intriguing little boost up in testosterone just before ovulation that some of the sports people are studying because women get this surge in kind of confidence and performance around that time. And also we have, we need to have a baseline level of testosterone mm. because also androgen, androgens convert to estrogen, but, but also just androgens themselves are beneficial. So that's true. I guess what I'm getting at is there is also research to suggest that excess androgens or chronically elevated testosterone in women, ca- well, causes or promotes insulin resistance. And oh, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. See, I thought, I thought we're on the same page. So this is, this would be the case for PCOS and this is, or polycystic ovary syndrome right. they get, they often have that, well, not often, they by definition have that duo, that combination of high androgens, androgens means male hormones or, and testosterone plus insulin resistance. And there's definitely like a vicious cycle between those two. The argument is, you know, with PCOS, which comes first, the insulin resistance or the high androgens. The research actually suggests high androgens come first, generally, with that condition. And then in the book, I explain, in this book, my book, I also explain that there's, we do get a shift to relatively high androgens with menopause. So our androgens don't go up mm-hmm. because in both men and women, testosterone slash androgens are on a slow, steady decline through our life going down. We actually get the slight increase in androgens in perimenopause, but it's temporary in the earlier phases of perimenopause, which is interesting. But what happens is when estradiol and progesterone drop away, we lose out on the the beneficial anti-androgen effect of those two hormones. So the androgens, the testosterone shines through. And that is potentially contributing to insulin resistance. It's not the only reason, but I just find that quite interesting. Certainly I have encountered patients who were overdosed on testosterone as part of hormone Mm -hmm. therapy. And I was convinced that was, I felt that was contributing to some weight gain, but it's not to say, no, I mean, I think you can, you can safely take testosterone as long as, I guess I would make the rule. I don't know how you feel, but I think if you're going to take testosterone for libido or mood, because testosterone can be quite stabilizing for mood, it should always be with estrogen and progesterone, never alone. That would be my thought oh, for menopause. Absolutely. For menopause, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just, you know, the data says that 50% of women in menopause are deficient in testosterone, but I'd say in the women I work with, it's more like 90%. And it's just so vital for brain function, not only cognitive, but initiative and mood. It also helps with bone, muscle, mass, so many things. So yes, thank you for clearing that out. Oh my gosh, I could sit here and talk to you for hours. Actually, do you mind me asking, what dose, or do you like, I don't know if you want to be that specific in the podcast, but I'm just Mm -hmm. curious for myself, what dose of testosterone might you prescribe? Like just for example, like for someone who, I guess. It depends for a transdermal. It depends what they're, we test, don't guess, of course. Yes, right. So at the Hormone Club, which is our telemedicine solution for women in 47 states in the US to get a bioidentical hormone therapy, we test, right? So we do the Dutch test, the dried urine metabolite test and see where their levels are. And then we also look at them as a whole person and kind of what else they have going on. But it could be, uh, 0.25 milligram of testosterone in a transdermal. Okay. It yep. could be a half a milligram, a milligram, two. And it just depends on kind of where they are. So that's usually where they yeah, might no, that's, start. That's good. And you, do you also test, I mean, this is a little technical. Last question. Mm-hmm. Do you test, um, or you, how closely do you look at SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin? Because this is another... This is just a a background thing. It's it's on a blood test. It's actually quite important, I think, for women Mm -hmm. in general to have that in a good range. It tends to drop at menopause. And then with a low SHBG, Mm -hmm. which is also insulin resistance can also lower SHBG and androgens lower SHBG, then you do get more available testosterone, put it that way. Because one of the things that SHB does is like bind to the testosterone and sort of right. shelter the, the body from it to some extent. So I'm just curious. I mean, I'm just now I'm just 
learning from you. <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah, yeah, so it is important to know that because then your free fraction will be higher. Kind of want to know what you're what you're dealing with. And yeah. like I said, we could go down the rabbit hole. I know. On this. I will. No, we won't. To. Yeah, we, <laughs> won't, we won't. won't. For your poor audience, no, we won't get too technical here. No. <laughs> yes, but I love the quote you shared with me uh, before the episode. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. From Annie yes. Dillard. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can share with everyone just some of your daily practices that help you to keep your hormones balanced and your health in tip-top shape. Yeah, I meat for breakfast. <laughs> I um, often I'm always meat, but protein. I'm an, a really avid walker. Now walking is just my, I've always loved it, like since I was a teenager. So that's my, for me, it's like, you know, movement. I don't generally sort of exercise or like go to the gym, although I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do, but I just, I think it's, been quite good for my life to find some and like a style of movement that I thoroughly enjoy. And um, I was staying with my parents recently and they were like, wait, how many walks are you going to go on today? (laughs) You know, and then I guess the other things for health is like, we didn't talk about it today, but is just quit alcohol basically, or seriously think about quitting it or reducing it dramatically, even though it's nice, it's lovely to have a beer with dinner. That would be my preference, but it's not worth it, especially during the tumultuous rewiring phase of perimenopause. Yeah, it's so true. I gave it up uh, when I got uh, healthy to over 10 years ago, and I don't miss it. And so I agree with you on that for so many reasons. We could do a whole episode on that. Maybe I'll have to have you back. (laughs) We'll talk about that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you have a free download of the first two chapters of Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual both, and we will have the link in the show notes. Where else can people find you? Yeah, so I'm easy to find. I'm at my website. My blog is larabryden.com. And actually, Dr. Kieran, I have a forum there, like a new discussion board where I'm Mm -hmm. inviting, I'm trying to recruit some practitioners to kind of sign in and share some of their knowledge. If you were ever inspired, I can um, send you the link. And then as a place to you know share your knowledge and potentially link to your books and things. And then all my social media is at Lara Bryden. Okay, I want to spell that just so everyone knows. L-A-R-A-B-R-I-D-E-N. So you can find her on social media and that's her website and check out everything that she has to offer. Thank you so much for joining me today. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us for another episode of the Hormone Prescription Podcast with Dr. Kieran. I will see you next week when I think we will be diving into a Q&A episode. Remember that you can, can submit your questions on my website, kierandunstonmd.com on the podcast page. Just click the link and you'll be able to record your message for me and I will be answering your questions on episode monthly at the Hormone Prescription Podcast. I really appreciate in advance you sending me those questions. Until next time, peace, love, and hormones, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.